Welcome all, and especially welcome to Professor Joseph Nye and to Molly Nye, his wife, for our first Harvard Faculty Series of 2020. The title of this program this evening is Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. That is, happens to be the title of Professor Nye's most recent book. There are still copies available outside if you would like to arrange for one after the lecture and Q&A are over. I'm Marlene O'Brien. I'm a uh, member of the club, a member of the Board of Governors of the club, and a, a chair of the member engagement committee here. I'm a graduate of the College of the Law School. Uh, Professor Nye, whom we are so honored to have here this evening, is University Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus and former Dean of the Kennedy School of Harvard University. May I ask the tech to please arrange to uh, mute the music in the hall. Thank you. <coughs> Professor Nye spent his undergraduate years at Princeton. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He received his PhD in political science from Harvard. His years in federal government have included service as chair of the National Intelligence Committee, <coughs> Council, excuse me, and deputy undersecretary of state. He has mentored generations and generations of Harvard students and has generously authored extraordinary books, including most recently the one that we're going to hear about this evening. I recently shared with my friend Professor Brian Hare my enthusiasm for Do Morals Matter, which I read cover to cover. It is a page turner, totally engaging, so logically and brilliantly structured. Meticulously and succinctly, he traces three elements of ethics for each president from FDR to Trump. First, the intentions and motives. Second, the means. And third, the consequences um, of each president's actions, and then offers ethical scorecards, which are very exciting to arrive at at the end of each very thoughtful discussion. Professor Hare had this to say when I was raving to him about the book. Joe Nye has established and developed the standard of excellence that scholars and diplomats aspire to uphold in two particular areas. First, in the theory of diplomatic relations and foreign policy, and second, in practical application of foreign policy, especially in the most difficult of areas, and I emphasize difficult. Professor Nye's followers and admirers span the globe. In a recent survey of international relations scholars, Professor Nye was ranked as the most influential scholar on American foreign policy. Please help me give a warm Harvard Club welcome to Professor Nye. Thanks. Thank you, Marlene, for a very generous introduction. And uh, it's really nice to be here at the Harvard Club. I should say that uh, uh, there's a joke that we use in my family about generous introductions like that, which is to warn you not to take them too seriously, because as our sons would say when people would call and ask, is Dr. Nye there? They'd say yes, but he's not the useful company. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my great friend Brian Hare on issues of moral theology, I defer to him, but uh, I will talk to you a little bit about uh, ethics and foreign policy or do morals matter. I, I said to a, a friend uh, at dinner uh, one night about a year or so ago when she asked me what I was doing, I said, well, I'm writing a book about ethics and foreign policy and presidential ethics. And she said, oh, well, at least it'll be a short book. <laughs> uh, and there is a a conventional wisdom that uh, there isn't a lot to be said about ethics and foreign policy. In our personal lives, we obviously 
care a lot about ethics, or at least the people in this room do, or you wouldn't be here. Uh, but that when you're in the area of foreign policy, the general or the conventional wisdom is uh, it's a world of uh, uh, winner-take-all, dog-eat-dog. There's no uh, higher government. Uh, there are no courts that can enforce rules and laws. Um, and it becomes survival of the fittest. And in that type of a world, uh, you just can't afford to worry too much about ethical questions. You just have to go with what's necessary or, or what is it that uh, uh, will save your nation. Uh, another way of putting it is that uh, it's all about national interest and uh, politicians basically follow national interest and then they sprinkle a little icing on it to make it look pretty and that icing is morality. Uh, so the, the argument is that this doesn't matter all that much. Now there's some circumstances where those extreme situations are true. Uh, for example, during World War II, uh, Winston Churchill uh, was faced with a dilemma. After Hitler captured France, uh, there was still an intact French fleet under the control of the Vichy government. And Churchill knew that if the Vichy government gave that fleet to Germany, it would have serious complications for the Royal Navy, which Britain's survival rested on. And so you know what Churchill did? He bombed the French fleet, his ally, and killed 1,300 French sailors. You know, you say, my gosh, that's about as immoral as you can get. On the other hand, if it's a situation of survival and you're responsible as a democratically elected leader for protecting the survival of the citizens who elected you and you're faced with a situation like that, it may be that you will sometimes do things which are really pretty awful. It's sometimes called the problem of dirty hands by philosophers that um, each of us, when we think about certain things, we say, no, I would never do that. I imagine very few of you would be willing to kill 1,300 allies. Uh, but it might be that in a certain circumstance, your choice is not between good and evil, but between two bads. And the question then is, which bad is worse? So Churchill was faced with the problem, is it worse to kill 1,300 of your allies or to lose the survival of your own nation. And we often say, well, in those circumstances, we will forgive or we'll say that you're not being held to ethical standards we would use in our normal life. But when people try to generalize from that to everything, it becomes a little bit tenuous. For example, when President Trump was trying to explain why he reacted so calmly without condemnation to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who was uh, uh, killed and dismembered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, and uh, Trump's comment, it's a rough world out there. Well, you know, that assumes that the murder of Khashoggi was similar to the situation that Churchill faced for the, uh, for the French fleet, and it's not. There are differences of degree. Even within the situation of World War II, there are differences of degree. For example, early in the war, when it looked like Britain's survival was at stake, Britain would bomb German cities. And the idea of bombing civilians, women and children, and killing innocent women and children is against a long tradition of just war theory, which is not only dates back to Augustine and the Christian tradition, but has been modernized and brought into what's called the uh, international law of humanitarian uh, conflicts. And uh, that view that you do not kill women and children uh, is fundamental to uh, 
this view. And it goes back to a very simple principle. When St. Augustine was worried about was it all right to violate the basic premise, thou shalt not kill, and he was faced with the conundrum that if you're about to be killed and you don't defend yourself, then evil will prevail and the good, those who won't defend themselves, will vanish. And so Augustine, in developing the origins of this just war doctrine, said in its self-defense against an imminent threat, then we can go against the commandment, thou shalt not kill. But notice what that entails. If you're on a battlefield and an enemy soldier is rushing at you, firing a gun, you can fire back. But if he suddenly stops, drops his gun, and throws up his hands, you can't shoot him, no matter what he was doing 30 seconds ago. And that's the distinction between self-defense and imminent threat. So when people took this back, incidentally, there's some implications of that for recent events, but I'm, I'm trying to go back into history. If you take that back to the Second World War, what's interesting is that at the beginning of the war, Churchill allowed the bombing of German cities, killing women and children. And there was a deliberate policy of doing this. It wasn't just collateral damage or accident. But many ethicists who've looked at that say, well, it's terrible, but on this principle of dirty hands and survival, we'll forgive it when Britain's survival is at stake. But in no way can you use this to justify the firebombing of Dresden in 1945, when the Allies basically had already landed at Normandy was clear that they were going to win the war and to kill nearly 100,000 civilians, women and children in Dresden, it wasn't necessary for survival. So when we say it's the world's a tough place, you can't use that as a cloak to allow anything. There may be, rarely, extreme circumstances where you have to bomb the French fleet. You don't have to bomb Dresden and you don't have to accept the murder of Jamal Khashoggi on the grounds that the world's a tough place. So when I talk about ethics and foreign policy or do morals matter, I'm trying to get people to make some of these distinctions, to realize that it's not either or, rarely black and white. It's usually various types of shades of gray and I'm trying to suggest in the book ways where we can try to inform our own moral reasoning by parsing out how we will judge these different situations. Take, for instance, the phrase America first, or the basic rule of national interest. Yes, all politicians act on their national interest. They're elected to do so in democratic societies. So when Donald Trump says America first, uh, many people say he's no different from any other politician. What would you say if Boris Johnson or before and Theresa May had not said Britain first or Macron had not said France first? That's, that's just normal. Well, yes, but the interesting question is not whether a political leader pursues the national interest, it's how does he or she define the national interest that they're pursuing. So yes, we want a president who will pursue America's interest, but we also want a president to define America's interest broadly and not myopically. There's a great debate that's been going on for the last few years about cosmopolitanism versus nationalism, that the rootless cosmopolitans with no loyalty to any country think that there's a world community and that they're opposed by this firm group of 
patriotic Americans who are firm, staunch nationalists. And uh, that may sound like a caricature, but in many times you will find rallies and political meetings where it's not, where that seems to be the characterization. And the argument is that these cosmopolitans are un-American, uh, unnatural, something wrong there. But the trouble with that, going back to my shades of gray and my matters of degree, is to some extent almost all of them are both cosmopolitans and nationalists at the same time. We as humans are susceptible of multiple levels of a sense of community and the loyalties that go with it. And the argument that it's either or is just nonsense. Let me give you a little thought experiment uh, to just illustrate what I mean. Imagine you're sitting by the beach one nice day and, and you're reading a really interesting book like mine, but might be even better. <laughs> and you know, all of a sudden as you're engrossed in the book, uh, you hear a call, help, help. And you look out and there's a child in the surf about 20 yards offshore and um, uh, you ask yourself, shall I put down this book? I'm really at an interesting point or shall I go save that life? I suspect all of you would jump up and save the child. Now suppose that instead of your same scenario, suppose instead of help, help, the child cried, ayudame, ayudame, or something in a foreign language. Would you say, oh, not American, go on reading, finish the chapter? I doubt it. I think your inclination to save another human being would be totally unaffected by whether they were this nationality or that nationality. So in that sense, we're capable of a sense of broader cosmopolitan community of humanity. At the same time, we're capable of narrower loyalties. But now to take the other side of that, the narrower loyalties, imagine same scenario, you're on the beach reading this book and you hear the cry of help, help, you look up, and two children are drowning in the surf about 20, 30 feet out. And you look and you can't rescue both of them. And one of them is yours and one is not. Is it immoral or moral for you to pick and choose and to rescue your own child first? Well, many people would say you have an additional moral obligation by the role you have as parent. You're not gonna flip a coin. The child has expectations of you because you're a parent and you have expectations of your role because you're a parent. So in that sense, this community that I expanded for you in the first example narrows down. But both of those are moral responses. So this view, America first, and we draw the line at the seashore or the border, is nonsense. We have both these feelings. We're both American and we're members of the human race at the same time. And to try to say it's either or is just not re reality. It's not who we are as a people. In fact, I say that not just as a moral statement, but but evolutionary biologists have done studies of this and they said it's natural for human beings to care about other human beings. A degree of altruism is built into our species and that's why our species has been able to evolve to have massive organizations which can accomplish extraordinary things which wolves or giraffes or bears can't do as a species. They may have other virtues but not those which come from having an ingrown evolutionary preference for a degree of altruism. But notice I say a degree of altruism. And that takes me back to America first. You can define America first in the national interest very narrowly, or you can define it expansively. You can't define it so that each American is equal to any other person anywhere in the world. You'll never get reelected if you say that. But you don't have to define it so narrowly that you keep people locked up in cages on the border. And somewhere in between those two positions, 
is what we want to debate in a democracy about what the national interest is and why something like America First doesn't solve that problem. So if that's the nature of the situation, then we have to ask, um, how do we judge? How do we make our own decisions about what are moral or immoral actions that our leaders take? And there, as Marlene said, uh, I try to talk about what I call three-dimensional ethics. Three-dimensional ethics means you want to look at motives, means, and consequences, or intentions, means, and consequences, not one or the other. Sometimes people will say, oh, Ronald Reagan was the most wonderful president because he had such moral clarity. And he did give wonderful speeches where he would ex uh, you know, expostulate on great moral principles about freedom and democracy and so forth. That's not enough to say that is morality. It's part of it, but it's not enough. Let me give you a very, again, homely example, not based at all on international relations, about what I mean by 3D morality. Imagine that your daughter uh, is gone to the school dance, the high school dance, and, uh, but she has the SATs tomorrow morning. It's a Friday night, she's gonna be back, and you've gotta uh, make sure she gets a good night's sleep. And a friend of yours says, oh, I know you've got something else you're going to. I'll drive her home, and I'll make sure I get her home early. I'll, be, I'll, I'll make sure. You say, well, that's really nice of you, thank you. So your friend picks her up and doesn't pay enough attention to the fact that it's been a sleet storm and the road is wet and icy, and to get her back on time, steps on the accelerator, drives much too fast for the road conditions, skids off the road, hits a tree, and your daughter is killed. Would you say, oh, but his intentions were so good, he wanted to get her home early for the SATs? Of course you wouldn't. You would say, despite his good intentions, he didn't pay appropriate attention to the means and the relations of the means to the circumstances, the slippery road and the speed, and the result was consequences which were hugely immoral or atrocious. Uh, and I think we can apply that same type of three-dimensional reasoning when we look at foreign policy. So that when you have a president who says, here is my statement of what I intend, and here's what I'm going to do, um, we would say that's the first dimension. We want to know your intentions. And for example, Ari Fleischer, who was George W. Bush's press secretary, said nobody has had greater moral clarity than George W. Bush, the freedom agenda bringing freedom to the Middle East. How can anyone object to that? Well, that's a great intention. But if you don't have the means to do it, aren't you on that slippery road that I described? And it's not just a recent problem that we see in relation to this. Uh, for example, when you look at intentions, you have to realize that the statements we're gonna get from our political leaders are probably all gonna sound pretty good. They're all gonna say that they have clear moral intentions or moral clarity. But motives can sometimes be different from their stated official intentions. In other words, I might state my intentions one way, but because I have a personal need, whether it's political, otherwise, I might sort of shade a little bit how I do this. And that personality mood may distort my intentions. So if you take the Vietnam War, the official stated intention of both John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson 
was to preserve the South Vietnamese against the horrors of totalitarian communism. Now that's, at least in Cold War rhetoric, but I would argue anyway, a pretty good intention. But then the question is, what were the motives which led the presidents as they responded to the situation in Vietnam to take the actions they took? And the question there is, were their intentions just to preserve the freedom of the South Vietnamese people, or were they more complex? It's often said that John F. Kennedy, who greatly expanded the number of troops from what Eisenhower had said, but many people believe that Kennedy would not have expanded it like Lyndon Johnson did in 65, if Kennedy had not been assassinated and had been reelected. Remember, Kennedy left Vietnam or left the world when Vietnam had 16,000 American troops, up about uh, you know, 15,000 from where Eisenhower left it. Johnson raised that to 565,000 American troops. And the question that McGeorge Bundy who was an advisor to both Kennedy and Johnson, and a hawk on Vietnam, uh, questioned his footprint. What would Kennedy have done had he lived? And George Bundy says Kennedy would have probably got out. He would not have expanded the way Johnson did. And when asked why he made that judgment, is because Kennedy cared about being seen as being smart. His personal ego, his, his motivations, in addition to the formal stated intent, he wanted to be smart. Johnson, his per personal ego and motivations is he didn't want to be seen as a coward. He feared, both of them didn't want to be known as the man who lost Vietnam. But for Johnson, there was something about it deeply rooted in his insecurities fear of being seen as a coward. And that result was 58,000 American deaths in Vietnam uh, after we'd had Johnson and Nixon, whereas it only been about 168 American deaths after the three years of Kennedy. And it becomes even more complex when you get to Richard Nixon. Nixon comes in in 69 and he and Kissinger discuss Vietnam, and they say, we can't win this thing. It's, it's out of the question. And then the issue is, well, what do we do about it? Do we try to get out quickly or not? And they decide, no, what they need is a, what they call a decent interval, which will preserve American credibility. And so you have two more years of fighting in which 22,000 Americans and countless Vietnamese die. And the question then is if Nixon's intent was to preserve American credibility in the Cold War and you produce, in quotes, a decent interval, which is only two years, does that justify 22,000 American deaths and all those Vietnamese deaths? I think not. So this whole question of intentions and motives is complex, but by using this one example of Vietnam and how different presidents related to it, I think I give you a way in which you say, okay, don't just take at face value what they say. Ask what they're actually intending to do and what's driving them that way. So that's one of the three dimensions. The second is means. So motive, means, and consequence. Means, we can have means that are efficient to get the job done. We also have means that are moral, that uh, can pay attention to other things besides getting the job done. I might be able to kill a terrorist in an apartment building by dropping a huge bomb on the building and kill 700 families at the same time, you'd say that's efficient. You killed the terrorist. It's not a moral means because you killed all those innocent people uh, in addition. So there's a difference between efficient means and moral means. 
Now, on terms of moral means, one of the things that's always intrigued me, uh, without getting into these details of just war theory and collateral damage and so forth, is the question of lying. What do you think about presidents lying? Now, you might say, well, that's pretty simple. Thou shalt not lie, except with a little bit of introspection. I suspect each of you know that you probably lie. I do. And a little self-honesty, you'll know that we all tell lies all the time. And if you get into a cab and ask a cab driver uh, what he thinks about presidents or politicians lying, uh, he or she will probably say, oh, all politicians lie. Just don't worry about it. Get over it. And yet, while there's some truth in that, there are, again, distinctions we want to make about these different shades of gray. There's a difference between a self-regarding lie, I regard because it's good for my ego or fits my pocket or whatever is helpful to me, and an other-regarding lie. I'm telling a lie, I know it's a lie, but I think it's for the good of others, not just myself. And in that sense, we have to realize that while people complain about Donald Trump's lying, uh, he's not unique. As the journalist Maggie Haberman, who's followed him since New York days, told me, uh, Trump is not unique. He's just extreme. And by that, what she was getting at is if you look back in American history, and I try to give you examples in this book, you'll find lots of things where presidents have taken actions that are not all that wonderful. And when you come to lying, uh, some presidents we admire greatly have been liars. Franklin Roosevelt is the one I find most fascinating because uh, FDR is certainly one of our great presidents as they were to recarve Mount Rushmore and put a fifth face up there. Most historians think that Franklin Roosevelt would get up there with the other four. However, Roosevelt told a number of lies, and some of them were self-regarding, uh, such as his relations with his wife and his mistress and so forth. But the big ones were other-regarding. For example, in 1941, Roosevelt was worried about how do I get the Americans into World War II because Hitler is a real threat to us, but nobody believes it, and the American people are all isolationists. Or as he said to his press secretary one day, what do you do if you're a leader in a democracy and you look over your shoulder and nobody is following? His speeches to try to cure us of isolationism had no effect. So what did he do? He lied. In 1941, there was an American destroyer, the Greer, in the North Atlantic, and Roosevelt told the American people that it had just been attacked by a German submarine. The fact was the Greer had attacked the German submarine first. But Roosevelt deliberately lied about it because he was looking for something that would get the American people to overcome their isolationism. I think he justified the lie on the grounds that it was in for the good of the American people in the long run to realize the threat that Hitler posed to us, even if it took a lie in the short run to get them to think that way. It didn't work, as you know. It was only the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor that allowed Roosevelt to get us into the war against Hitler. But that's an illustration of a presidential lie. Lyndon Johnson used lies for the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in 1964. There were two attacks by Vietnamese patrol boats against American uh, frigates in the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, the first was real, though it responded to an American attack on the shore of the Gulf of Vietnam. So it wasn't unprovoked, but it was a real attack. The second was not real. And Johnson himself says at one time to some of the staff near him, those stupid sailors are probably shooting at flying fish. 
but he told the American Congress that this was a second attack in a row, and we had to respond, and we got the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which gave him a blank check, which he filled out with disastrous consequences. So there are examples of presidents who told lies with major consequences. Both of them, however, were at least in intent and probably in motive other-regarded rather than self-regarded. So when people say to me that, well, so Donald Trump is no different from any other president, I say, yes, he is. A great many of his lies are self-regarding, the size of the crowds at his inauguration as a silly example. But there's also enormous amount of quantitative difference. The Washington Post has a fact-checking arrangement in which they found that Trump, within his first 1,000 days in office, had told 15,000 lies. That's an extraordinary debasing of the currency. You can get away with lying like Roosevelt did if you do it occasionally. If you do it all the time, then when you go to the UN Security Council, as the administration did a few weeks ago, and said we had to kill Suleimani because of an imminent threat, it's not surprising that nobody believes you anymore. So yes, you can start with a proposition all presidents lie and still make distinctions between the types of lies and the amount of lies. So when we distinguish means, again, it's not always just black and white. It also matters of degree. Finally, let me turn to consequences. Consequences are often hard to assess when you're dealing with uh, complex international phenomena or any kind of social phenomena. And we often uh, cannot predict the full uh, range of consequences that will come from our actions. So the key question that we have to ask is not do presidents sometimes produce unintended consequences, but how careful were they in assessing the situation, in thinking through the probability of the unintended consequences? Or to go back to my example of the road incident, how carefully did they consider that the icy conditions on the road could lead to terrible consequences. And there, you'll find that presidents vary tremendously. Just let's take just the Bush family, uh, because there you have a nice control, which is half the genetics are the same. So we can't attribute it just to genes. And uh, the argument I would make is that somebody like George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, had extraordinary contextual intelligence because of his background. And he had a very great capacity to weigh these possible consequences. It didn't mean he never made mistakes, he did, but he had a pretty good sense of judgment about what consequences would look like and when to stop and slow down and when not. His son, George W. Bush, whose experience internationally was very limited as governor of Texas, he'd gone to Mexico a few times, but, the, uh, but really no contextual intelligence for international affairs. So when he pronounced a freedom agenda for Iraq and was going to bring democracy to the Middle East, he really didn't have much of a sense of what means were there and what the consequences would be if the means were not adequate to the task. So when they went into Iraq in 2003, it was on the premise that we would be greeted as victors and liberators. Of course, that was not the case. Killing Saddam Hussein was easy. Producing democracy in Iraq turned out to be much harder. Now you can say, ah, but he didn't expect that. It's not his fault, unintended consequences. 
But I think the answer is if somebody assesses the probability of consequences as negligently as the Bush administration did, if it was a legal case, we would call it culpable negligence. And in that sense, there were papers in the US government produced by the State Department or the CIA which warned against some of the problems in the occupation of Iraq. They were ignored by the White House. That's, to my mind, in law, culpable negligence. So to conclude this, what I argue is that as you try to work your way through history and make your judgments about recent history, but also the kinds of problems we're going to face in the future regarding the role of China or how we deal with climate change or whatever the great issues are going to be, we're going to have to become more sophisticated in the way we deal with our moral assessments because we're not going to escape them. <laughs> and to pretend that we're going to escape them is merely to take the easy way out, such as he had moral clarity or it's not a problem. The result turned out right, so don't worry about it. In fact, it's going to be much more complicated than that. It's going to be in this area of shades of gray. Uh, to summarize, so you don't have to buy the book if you haven't, uh, for me, I give a scorecard to the 14 presidents we've had since 1945. And I put in the top quartile Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and the first President Bush. I put in the bottom quartile Johnson, Nixon, uh, and uh, uh, Trump. And I put the rest spread out. I should have put Bush 43 in the bottom quartile as well. So I put the rest of the presidents somewhat spread out in between. You can see my judgments and my scorecards for yourself. What I would urge you, if you do look at the book, don't take my judgments too seriously. I may change them. We often discover new information or conditions change and we reassess things. So it's not the fact that I've scored a particular president in a particular way and you may agree or disagree. I have close friends who disagree with my scoring of Nixon in the recent interval that I mentioned. The important thing about the book, or what I'm trying to get across, is use this three-dimensional framework to educate your moral reasoning, to make yourself work harder as you make judgments about what you see our leaders doing, whether it's at the presidential level or other levels. But that, to me, is what's really going to be needed for the American people to have a healthy democracy and a good democratic, and I say that with a small v, foreign policy as we look ahead over the coming years. And that's the reason I wrote the book, even though my friends cautioned me at the beginning it was a waste of time. So thank you all for listening, and I'd be happy to answer some questions. Professor Nye for that wonderful talk. Um, I was wondering, given this framework, um, how you might assess the um, career of any Kissinger, who's obviously thought as deeply about these types of issues as anyone, and yet he has books written about him that range from the panegyrics to accusations of war crimes. So he seems like a very interesting example to try to parse. I, I was curious. It's a, it's, a, it's a great question and I appreciate it because um, when I was a graduate student, Kissinger was on my general exam. So, um, and I've known him uh, over the years. Um, I'm somewhere in the middle between those two sets of books. There's some things that he did 
which I think were not necessarily not necessary and were inexcusable. Uh, I mentioned Chile as an example there. There are other things which were much more difficult, such as the question of do we need a decent interval in Vietnam, where I've argued that the Nixon-Kissinger administration uh, overdid this. They should have quit sooner. But I have very serious moral friends who have said, no, it wasn't that easy, that, that, that they didn't have as much choice as you think because of the credibility issue. And there are other points where Kissinger actually, when you look at his writings, uh, such as his book on world order, where he says, balance of power is not enough. You need values and legitimacy as well. So the idea that Henry is a total cynic and doesn't understand this or care about it is also not true. And uh, so it's a, it's a mixed record, but he's not the devil some people make, and he's certainly not an angel. Well, here's, here's a woman on, on Christy on the side there. Um, is it possible that you could relate what you just described to us, to your perceptions about um, the China context? About the, what con the which China context? Yes, I, one of the, uh, I mean at the end of the book, in the last chapter, I argue that there are two kinds of big challenges that Americans are going to have to sort their way through. One is what I call a horizontal power shift from west to east, from Europe to Asia. And that it raises all sorts of problems. Sometimes people say that a rising power will lead to a war with the existing power and that that's what happened in 1914 and it is what destroyed Europe as the center of the world balance of power and that uh, this may happen in the 21st century. That the U.S. will respond to China's rise so strongly and uh, with such fear and exaggeration that uh, we will unleash something which will be devastating for us, for China, and for the world. I don't think that's likely, but I do think that the dangers of casting China into a new Cold War or exaggerating China's uh, strengths uh, is, is a mistake. So the question is how do you make sure that as we develop a policy toward China, we don't either under or overestimate China and try to, try to see what I talked about as unforeseen consequences. What are the ways in which we can work with China? Doesn't mean you give in to them on all sorts of things. I mean, I personally, for example, would not allow Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications company, to build our 5G telecommunications network. I think that's a vulnerability we shouldn't allow ourselves to undergo. On the other hand, I wouldn't worry too much about buying Chinese subway cars that made the orange line work a little better. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's a, it, we have to find ways in which we can balance this. The other, just to complete the argument, the other part of the last chapter refers to what I call vertical power shifts, not the one related to China, which is countries which we know about. Uh, it's what do you do when the threats and challenges that you face are the shift of power from states to non-state actors and the threats are transnational where there's no border, no national border that makes a difference. And cyber is a good example of this, but climate change is another. We haven't thought our way through how to respond to that. And the answer is that if you think having power over another country will solve the problem of climate change, think again. You can only solve the problem of climate change by having power with others, not over others. But Americans don't like to think about power with others. We tend to think about power over others. And we have to have a leader, and we ourselves have to educate ourselves into a much more sophisticated ways of thinking about power than we have in the past. 
that's not a China answer, except it does lead you to the following proposition, that since China and the U.S. together put 40% of the CO2 into the atmosphere, uh, we can't solve this problem without China, and China can't solve it without us. Yes, you have a question in front. Would you share your perspective on the decision to drop two atomic bombs on Japan? Well, the um, I tried to spend some time on this in the in the chapter on Truman. Truman is often condemned for dropping bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. People often say, well, he could have stopped after Hiroshima, but in fact, the programming was pretty much that we were going to do two. And um, General Groves, who was the uh, head of the Manhattan Project, which developed the atomic bomb, said that Truman was like a little boy who's put on a toboggan after the toboggan has been shoved off down the hill. It would have been very hard for him to have stopped that. He could have, strictly speaking, but the idea of it not knowing much about nuclear weapons and having been a vice president who was shut out from decision making, for him to have stopped the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs, it's possible, but it, you can understand why it didn't happen. What's interesting is that a third bomb was not dropped. There was a third bomb. And when Truman was asked about it, he said, no, I'm not going to kill that many women and children. And what's more, five years later, when Truman was losing the war in Korea and was told this is going to destroy your presidency, and General MacArthur said, I want permission to drop 25 to 40 atomic bombs on Chinese cities, Truman said no. So the man who said he did not lose sleep over Hiroshima actually made one of the most important decisions in the post-war period, which was not to let nuclear weapons become normal weapons. So that, you could argue, is a rapid pace of moral learning, even if you don't excuse the initial act. Yes. In terms of morality, how do you evaluate personal morality versus public morality? So, you know, we've had presidents like JFK, you know, their personal morality had some issues or, you know, womanizing, etc. But in, uh, in Europe, for example, that was not considered even relevant in the, in the realm of, uh, you know, assessing morality. So in your scorecards and your dimensions, how did you assess the personal aspect and did you define a private sphere versus a public sphere? Well, it's a very interesting question because many people would say, for example, if you talk to a, a French friend and you, when they were, I remember speaking to French friends at the time of Clinton's uh, Monica Lewinsky affair, I say, you know, they say, you're going to impeach the president over what? Said President Mitterrand, when President Mitterrand died, his wife showed up, his mistress showed up, and his illegitimate daughter showed up. And nobody felt the worse for it. And they said, how can you then be impeaching a president over something so trivial? And you say, well, um, Americans are a more moralistic or Puritan society, or uh, he lied, uh, and uh, he was exercising power in an illegitimate fashion. He had power over an intern. That was uh, not appropriate. So you can say there are lots of things which were highly immoral about what he did, and it wasn't just purely personal because they affected his role publicly as, a, as an exemplar or leader. But uh, it is a little bit difficult for some Europeans to understand how we approach that as opposed to how, uh, how they approach it. I think my place of drawing the line on it is if your personal behavior interferes with your public role as a leader, then it should be condemned. Otherwise, it can be left in the realm of personal behavior, and you condemn it on a personal level, but not as a public level. 
but it turns out to be often very hard to keep those things separate. Last week's Economist magazine focused on the killing of the Iranian general. The uh, cover of the magazine said, Master Stroke or Madness. Given your 3D framework, um, can you share some thoughts or is it too soon to tell? Well, imagine that it turns out to be a master stroke in the sense that uh, killing Soleimani, who is not a very good man, makes the Iranians uh, reduce their aggressive actions in the region, uh, such as supporting militias in Syria and Lebanon and so forth in Iraq. Um, so suppose it turns out that Iranian behavior becomes more prudent as a result of this killing. Would we say, well, okay, he wins. He, he flipped a coin and came up heads. He, he wins. I don't think so. I think you have to go back to my point about intentions and means. What we saw the president do was cross two red lines. One was assassination, killing a high official of another state with whom we were not at war in a third country puts us back into the period in the Cold War where we ourselves pursued assassination. President Ford said, no, that's enough of that. This is not a good idea. And once you say we're going to break out of that norm, then you have to ask, okay, suppose Secretary Pompeo or CIA Director Haskell goes to Baghdad and is assassinated by an Iranian, what can we say? Do we really want to unloose that? Do we want to break that norm? So in addition to the norm of have we restored deterrence of Iranian, Iranian behavior, we've had a damage to an important norm for international politics more generally. The other thing that, the, the other red line the president crossed was uh, the, the law about warlike or forceful acts which under the UN Charter you can take, you can use force against another country or its high officials if you're authorized by the Security Council or if it's self-defense under Article 51 when there is an imminent threat. And of course the administration went to the UN and said yes there was an imminent threat. But when we went to the Congress and briefed them on the intelligence, even Republican senators like Mike Lee and Rand Paul said the evidence was totally unconvincing. And if you go back to my point about 15,000 lies, who's going to believe us? And once we've destroyed that red line between when you use force or not in self-defense, why can we, how do we stop others from not only criticizing us, but from criticizing Putin's actions in Crimea? So the damage that the president has done by his actions, to me, outweigh the benefits, particularly if there were alternative ways to restore deterrence. You could have bombed Iranian missile sites. You could have sunk an Iranian command and control ship in the Persian Gulf as a way to restore deterrence without breaking those moral principles and institutional red lines that are good for us but also good for the world as a whole. So it's a, it's a little bit, my view is a little more complex than the economist cover, though I'm a fervent reader of the economist. I, I thought they didn't go far enough into looking at the collateral damage that Trump had done to norms and law, which he didn't have to do. It wasn't like bombing a French In the context of uh, foreign policy failures in the past century, like the, the big ones, Vietnam, Iraq, Suez, from the perspective of the British, one of the common denominators to me seems to be the tool of maintaining national reputation as the national interest. And I was wondering about your thoughts 
as to that notion, but in the American context and also more generally. Well, reputation matters. And if you get a reputation for being pusillanimous or weak, uh, others will take advantage of you. Many people have said that the big problem for Barack Obama in uh, 2013 was not carrying out his threat to bomb Syrian uh, military after they used chemical weapons on the population was not just the situation in Syria because Obama worked out a deal to remove weapons, chemical weapons from Syria, which probably got rid of more chemical weapons than bombing would have. But the real damage was broader than that. It was the reputation that the United States uh, would say something is a red line and not uh, live up to it. Um, and I think that's an example of, uh, if you want, a reputation of being weak can be expensive. But your reputation also includes whether you stand up for values and principles. And if it's clear that you will always drop your principles or your values whenever it's convenient, then you get no soft power, as I call it, the power of attraction that comes from standing up for values. So go back to the example I gave earlier of, the, uh, of Trump's reaction to the murder of Khashoggi because he wanted to curry favor with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Um, both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times condemned him for that failure to stand up for values. And that means another part of our reputation was damaged in this case, the part that helps our soft power. Obama's action damaged our reputation for hard power. You need to pay attention to both. One more, okay. I'll let you make a choice. Uh, you've... Um, Indicated, I think, that if one analyzes all this very thoroughly, one will reach um, the, the right moral evaluation. It seems to me there could be another person somewhere in the world who has your powers of analysis as well, but different moral views. A couple of things you've said tonight, I, I would take a different moral view myself. I'm not saying I'm remotely equal to your ability to analyze these things. Uh, but what happens when two people do what you've done tonight, very carefully consider everything, and reach very different conclusions? Um, and do we criticize the one who reached a different conclusion from what you would have done uh, and does the different thing, uh, but, but has been every bit as hardworking as you have been on the analysis, but just figures the moral thing to do is the opposite of what you would do. Well, it's a very valid point, and, and uh, I think the answer is that at some point you agree to disagree uh, after you've done the best you can to explain yourselves to each other. Um, I've been involved with a three-way um, uh, dialogue with two historian friends uh, about this issue I mentioned earlier about was Nixon involved in searching for a decent interval. And I have one friend who says no, there was no alternative, and another who says yes, there was, and I can go back and forth on that. There's also, so, and, and in a case like that, then you just have to say many of these issues are not clear black and white, which is, I think, what I've been trying to say. And after you've done your best to lay out reasons and to listen to others, you have to say, at some point, we can't resolve it. There's a further complication, which is what looks like an answer now uh, may not look like the same answer 10 years from now. David McCullough once said that you can't judge a presidency until 50 years after it ended. Uh, George W. Bush used to say, uh, about Iraq when he was embroiled in Iraq. Well, Harry Truman was very unpopular at the end of the Korean War, and now he's listed as one of the top presidents. 
And so Bush is implied by that that he was very unpopular and he'd, be, he'd get back up into the pantheon of someday. Um, it's not out of the question. Uh, it seems to me highly unlikely. But the, but the point is you can reason about it. I can give you a half a dozen reasons why I think that is unlikely, which I think is for George W. Bush he would disagree with. But um, uh, so we can't expect to solve all these problems. But what we can do is try to get away from knee-jerk reactions. Uh, you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat, or I'm an independent, and you're a Democrat, whatever. And therefore, I don't trust your values or care about what you say. We have to care. In a democracy, we have to be engaged in moral reasoning with each other. And I'm not trying to give you the right answer with my scorecard. I'm trying to provide a way in which we can have that kind of uh, dialogue. 